Welcome to The Painted Garden with Kimberly Trowbridge. This is a podcast about color theory and the creative life. Hello, sentient beings and also original color kittens. This is an exciting episode for me because I am speaking to you from Bloedel Reserve Gardens on Bainbridge Island, where I am current creative fellow. What that means is I get the opportunity over the past two years to be here and live amongst the gardens for different periods of time and different seasons. And right now, it being July, uh, the meadows are full of beautiful, long, tall, wavering yellow grasses and the sweet, sweet smell of those grasses warmed by the sun. Right now, I'm speaking to you from inside the residence where I stay, looking out uh, from a wall of windows onto the back deck where I do some of my plein air work. And the back deck is a kind of bridge over a little ravine and ends in a deck. And when you're out on the deck, it feels like you're on the bow of a ship sailing through a sea of ferns. On the left side is just covered in beautiful, massive sword ferns. And on the right is a beautiful mass of bracken ferns. And so very different patterns and textures. Well, I guess similar, but uh, different enough that there's a really interesting feel that happens when you gaze from the left to the right and the way that those different ferns articulate themselves the sword ferns being very pointy and kind of linear and the bracken ferns a little bit more triangular and a little bit more lacy feeling, a little more lightweight. And these ferns are on the ground of a beautiful forest of dug fir trees that are a kind of neutral grayish violet purple color and they're beautiful furrowed bark. There are also many alder trees and also big leaf maples. And right now, as I'm looking out on this scene, the afternoon light is trickling through the trees and creating just a beautiful pattern uh, within this bower. So I'm very, very happy to be here. And it's a very special experience for me getting to return here and feel a real kind of camaraderie with a lot of the plants and to be able to watch the changes that they go through. Today, I actually want to share with you a response that I wrote my first day here on my residency to a student's inquiry. Uh, The student had sent me a message, um, I think a little bit frustrated with color theory. And the student was asking me, you know, or, you know, asking me, what is color theory in a sense, or and is it necessary? The student said, I've been painting and enjoying it, but I'm still struggling with color theory. My question is, do painters like Fairfield Porter and other painters in history and currently Did they use a color theory? And if not, how did they get away without it? 
Uh, She says, there may not be a simple answer, but my current color decisions could send me screaming back to black and white. And I hear that frustration, I hear that inquiry, and I really appreciated the questioning. And it was a wonderful prompt for me, actually, my first morning here, to sit here at the same desk in front of this window and really think about uh, how I wanted to respond to that. And so I'm going to read to you my response to this student. Firstly, let's perhaps go ahead and dismantle the word theory and replace it with the word practice. We as colorists are involved in a color practice, as a monk is involved in a spiritual practice. It is a commitment to creating a lifestyle that integrates a deep and active inquiry while remaining open to the unknown. There are no right or wrong answers, but there are many helpful paths towards greater understanding. As color practitioners, we attempt to identify elements of color that we can name and analyze and experiment with, for instance, value, temperature, and intensity. Having a language for this helps guide us through an otherwise overwhelming amount of perceptual information. Is it necessary for an artist to have this color language? No. I think many artists would say they have no language or conscious understanding of color. However, through their practice, they have developed their own combination of sensual, tactile, instinctual, and subconscious understanding of how colors interact, and these artists have created a pattern of what works for them. This, simply put, is their color theory. It is their constellation, their unique constellation of interactions they've developed out of their color practice, and the paintings are the evidence of that. Is it helpful to have a color language? Yes, but only as a suggestion or as a starting place or perhaps as a way to help solve a mess we may have gotten ourselves into. It is helpful to have a language for focusing our attention on certain elements. It is a way of helping us sharpen and deepen our perception. However, this language can be a roadblock, a placing of the cart before the horse. For a student of color, this is often a real struggle. The anxiety or fear of making a wrong move and overanalyzing to the point of no longer seeing and sensing, but rather getting tangled in a web of unhelpful theory. The language is only helpful as a tool, as a means for entering into the splendid unknown. It is also a helpful guide when we get lost, a kind of net of questions we can return to, but not the end in itself. 
creating a language for color is a bringing into consciousness much of what is already embedded in our unconscious act of perceiving. This is the formal language of art making. This language is not natural. It is a learned trade to help us translate this phenomenal experience of perception into an image. The good news is this. You already know so much. You have your whole lifetime as a perceiver. You could know none of this color language and still make amazing pictures. You may have no language for describing the difference between the warm light on the meadow grass through the cool green forest, and yet still you may reach for the tubes of paint or the crayons that express that relationship beautifully. Forget color theory, I say. Make pictures from your gut. And then, once in a while, use language to describe the pictures you love, and also to describe the pictures that you don't love. This analytic way of thinking will help sharpen you and will become integrated into your unconscious way of perceiving. Like it or not, we are conscious beings. And to be an artist is to constantly be moving back and forth between the known and the unknown. To find a language that helps us enter into and refine our vision so that we can share it. I have always loved music. But only five years ago did I start to learn a language for it. I can now listen to a song and isolate what the bass is doing, what the guitar is doing, etc. Whereas before, all of the instruments blended together in a magical cacophony of sound. This new understanding and ability to analyze the parts is thrilling for me and only adds to my deep love of music. It is a deeper understanding of how a song is constructed. This language has helped me refine my hearing. But, I say, perhaps write a love song and then later figure out the notation of that song. And after a while, your love songs will become more and more articulate and truly deeply from the heart. This morning on my walk out into the meadow towards the bird marsh and pond area, I glanced backwards at the field and the wavering grasses and the tops of those grasses with their seeds flowering and they had a kind of mauve kind of magenta coloring to them in the shadows, almost a kind of cool indigo ultramarine coloring to them, and the kind of visual mass of all these soft seedling flowering tops looked like a mist resting gently on top of the field. 
when I came back, I looked up the anatomy of grasses in order to learn some words for these parts I was responding to. And so some of my new words include inflorescence, spikelet, and panicle. Which reminds me of a poem I've read many times. It's by Robert Haas, and it appears in his collection called Praise. This collection was published in 1979, the year I was born. And of all the books on my poetry shelf, it's probably the one that is the most tattered and worn with love and use. It has traveled with me in many bags and pockets. It's a beautiful uh, kind of mintish green cover, uh, I think with a blackberry, an illustration of a blackberry vine on the cover. And the poem that comes to mind uh, while naming these parts of grass, uh, Robert Haas is just a absolute lover of the names of things. Uh, This poem is called Weed. It is a poem about the horse parsnips and a play on the words that name that weed. At the beginning of the poem, he mentions Lorca, who of course is Federico Garcia Lorca, the wonderful Spanish poet. Weed by Robert Haas. Horse is Lorca's word, fierce as wind or melancholy, gorgeous, Andalusian, white horse grazing near the river dust. And parsnip is hopeless, second cousin to the rhubarb, which is already second cousin to an apple pie. Marrying the words to the coarse white umbels sprouting on the first of May is history, but conveys nothing. It is not the veined body of Queen Anne's lace I found, bored in a spring classroom, from which I walked hands tingling for the breasts that are meadows in New Jersey in 1933. It is thick, shaggier, and the name is absurd. It speaks of durable, unimaginative pleasures, reading Balzac, fixing the window sash, rising to a clean kitchen, the fact that the car starts, and driving to work through hills where the roadside thickens with the green, ungainly stalks, the bracts and bright white flowerets of horse parsnips. Thank you, Robert Haas, for your incredible life's work in poetry, for your deep love of the names of things and the way those names shape and form the mouth and the flood of fluid associations that come with the naming of things. His wonderful pairing of the strong melancholy, fierce horse of Lorca's poetry with the absurdity of the parsnip, all coming together in his life and his associations with the word 
horse parsnips. Wonderful poetry. And now it is time for me to go walking in the gardens. But before I go, I'm going to leave you with one more poem. It's one I'm sure many of you are already familiar with. It is the very well-known poem called Wild Geese by Mary Oliver. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. Thank you for joining me here today at the Painted Garden brought to you from Blodell Reserve on Bainbridge Island. If you're in the mood, head over to my website and my notes section and my newest post called Notes from the Garden for some more words on what I've been up to and what I've been thinking about here on my residency. Until next time. Thank you.